today we are in uh, John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. And we're going to jump right in. Uh, Just going to take just a quick moment to to pray once again uh, and ask God to to speak to our hearts uh, from this passage scripture and then we're going to jump right into it today. So so, uh, pray with me if you will. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in the lives of all those who look to you uh, in humble faith and call upon your name, putting their trust in in the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, for the forgiveness of our sins and and uh, for the eternal life that you uh, that you give those those uh, living living waters. And we pray that you would be our teacher today. We pray that you would give us understanding and that you would open up our hearts and minds. Uh, that you would turn on the lights for us today as we uh, look through this passage, and that uh, we would be. Uh, better off for it and that you would be glorified in it in it all we just uh pause to ask lord that you would speak through your word by your spirit today um, in jesus name amen all right so uh john chapter four we're going to start at verse one and go through and uh and uh it's going to be some good thoughts here from, from John chapter 4. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Samaria. Now there's this really beautiful part in chapter 3 where John, some of John's disciples come to him and and they say, you know, said that, that Jesus' disciples were, uh, were baptizing people and everyone is going to him. And, and uh, John replies with this beautiful imagery of the uh, best man and, and the bridegroom. And he says, uh, the joy, uh, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Um, that's in chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. It's full of important truths there, and so hopefully you've read and prayed through that. And so it says in verse 4, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, when it says he had to pass through Samaria, that doesn't mean that there weren't options, that there were no other ways to get from Judea to Galilee, because uh, there were, you could go around Samaria. There were roads, uh, there was a road to the east, there was another road to the, to, uh, to the west. Uh, the one in the east was across the Jordan River and up the Jordan Valley uh, through Perea. And the Jews uh, would uh, typically travel that other road. They did it all the time. Not because uh, it was shorter because it wasn't shorter, not because it was better because it wasn't better. And I'm sure that the attitude that the Jews had toward the Samaritans is well known. Um, I'm sure that you're uh, fully aware of, of that. Um, it features prominently in our story today, in fact. Now, a few weeks back, I showed you a map of Palestine from the days of Jesus. And I think we're going to try to see if we can bring that up again. There we are. Um, you 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 recall that you have your the southern uh, region of Judea, and then uh, you have the northern region of Galilee, and then sandwiched in between that you had the 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 area known as uh, Samaria. So that's what we're talking about today. But the Jews didn't draw the map like that. Uh, they just basically had their own map, and on their map they just left Samaria out, 
And so when they traveled, they, uh, they went around that area, typically, and usually up the Jordan Valley. And uh, uh, from my study, uh, it seems that the Galileans were far more likely to take the direct route through Samaria than the, more likely than the Jews were. And uh, our text today, along with uh, Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 17, are instances where Jesus and his disciples went uh, through Samaria. So it seems that this was one of those ways that Jesus ignored the conventional teachings and scruples of the Jewish rabbis. So they're traveling through Samaria, and it says uh, in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about uh, the sixth hour. Now it's been com uh, common for commentators to place this scene at noon. Because the sixth hour of the day in the Jewish mind was, uh, was uh, 12 noon. Uh, and that would put it in the heat of the day. And they suggest, some commentators suggest that uh, that would not be the normal time for somebody to be at the well getting water, but that this woman had reasons for being there when she did. Um, however, if this is Roman time marking that John is using, which is a distinct possibility and maybe even a probability when we consider uh, John's intended audience and the fact that the disciples had gone to search for food. Uh, and if John is using the Roman uh, time markings, then it would be six in the evening. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Jesus being weary from a full day's travel, uh, disciples being sent out to look for food. And um, Alfred Edersheim uh, points out as well, uh, that there was another well on the east side of Sakaar that was a lot closer to town. And that probably was the more common gathering place for, for the uh, women who would go to get water at the closing of the, the heat of the day. And uh, yeah, and that helps us to see why the woman uh, would have been alone at the well when Jesus came to her, it says in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John has in parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here's that animosity we were talking about a moment ago. And now, now the low regard that Jews had for Samaritans is well known. Most people today, they know that, whether it's from stories of the Good Samaritan the parable that Jesus told or, or whatever. But what you may not know is that this went both ways. Uh, we tend to see the Samaritans as the underdogs of the New Testament storyline. We like to look at life that way. Uh, we like to think that in this life there are heroes and there are villains, right? There's those who are right and those who are wrong. There are perpetrators, there are victims. And we tend to think that those were, they, that, uh, about those self-righteous Jews and those poor uh, despised Samaritans. 
Um, and we're quite quick to come to those types of judgments. We love oversimplification. We love to, uh, to take a quick and easy, mile-high look and, and pass judgment on situations and events and people and, and, and whatnot. Um, but one of the things coming out of my study lately is the recognition that uh, uh, the Samaritans were not an innocent party. Um, for example, there are accounts of Samaritans laying wait on the road and ambushing and killing Jewish pilgrims. And that's only one example of many of the things that Jews suffered uh, at the hands of the Samaritans in, in the days leading up to, uh, to the, the days of Jesus. And so there's a lot of history there that's uh, important. And, and that's one of the reasons why we can't just simply read the Bible. We need to uh, study the Bible. And when we read the, uh, some of the writings of the ancient rabbis, we discover that uh, Jews had mixed feelings about Samaritans. Uh, what some rabbis said at some times conflicted with what other rabbis said at other times, and they weren't exactly sure how to feel sometimes about the, about the Samaritans, because uh, on the one hand, they shared a lot. They shared a lot geographically, uh, ethnically, theologically, but they fought a lot too. Jesus answered her, verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did his sons uh, and his uh, livestock. Now, take a, take a notice here. Um, Jacob, our father. Are you greater than Jacob, our father? If we're going to understand about the Samaritans, we need uh, the history that we have spent the last year and a half studying, the biblical history. Um, I brought the subject up myself several times when we were talking about the the uh, fall of the northern kingdom and how the Assyrians brought in other people groups and uh, they got mixed in with the, the remnants of the people that they didn't carry away from the northern tribes. Um, uh, it came up again when we were t studying uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, their uh, involvement with the people uh, of Samaria and the uh, what we call the post-exile or post-exilic uh, days in leading up to the New Testament uh, period, the intertestamental period uh, that sets up the New Testament. But it goes farther back than, than that. It goes back uh, to the time of King David and the breakup of the kingdom into the northern tribes and the southern tribe of, of Judah. Do you remember that when, when we were going through? I hope you do. Uh, let me read a, a statement from 1 Kings 12. It says, And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, that was King uh, Rehoboam, by the way, Solomon's son, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. You remember that? So 
David was trying to, even in his day, uh, unite all the tribes together. But there was always animosity. Even before that, even before Egypt, before the Exodus, before the wilderness, before the giving of the law, the sons of Jacob, remember Joseph, remember how they treated Joseph, remember the jealousy, the animosity, the coat of many colors, and the incredible story of reconciliation and forgiveness that is, is, is presented to us in those last chapters of the book of Genesis. Question for you. What area in the promised land in the nation of Israel became the territory of the tribes of Joseph years later when they settled the land? Remember, Joseph had two sons. Their names were Ephraim and Manasseh. They became the largest and two most dominant tribes of the northern kingdom. So Ephraim and uh, Manasseh, or Joseph, if you will, really represents the, the north, the area that we now uh, refer to and it would become known as simply as uh, Samaria. Now, how relevant is that to the whole storyline here? Well, take, think again about the woman's question. What did she say to Jesus? She said, are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well. History, biblical history. If we disparage history, we are forfeiting our understanding because these things are all pertinent. Jesus said to her, verse 13, uh, you know, it's almost sounds like she's challenging him right here, right? Like, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? It almost sounds like a challenge. And... Uh, uh, the Samaritans were descendants of Jacob uh, as well as uh, Jesus was a descendant of Jacob by Judah, by David. He was the son of David. So Jesus said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, Jesus is talking about eternal life. The woman seems to still be thinking in temporal terms. Perhaps she's thinking how nice it would be uh, if she didn't have to go out in public anymore. Um, wells were public gathering places. Um, I've been missing, I don't know about you, but I've been kind of missing my, my trips to the grocery store. We, you know, Florence and I, you know, kind of take turns. Mostly it's her going to, for groceries uh, these days. And, uh, and so I, but I always used to have to plan at least a half hour or maybe even an hour of extra time to go to the grocery store because of all the socializing that happens at the grocery store. Well, wells were like that. And, and uh, uh, public places can be, can be a little scary for some people. And for this woman as we see, as we carry on in her story here, it was a bit traumatic for her to be in public places. Uh, Jesus said to her, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, 
You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, this is where the story gets super interesting. And this is where the story turns. Jesus is in Samaria talking with a Samaritan, and she was shocked by that. And she's a Samaritan woman, and she was surprised by that too because you see, we see when the disciples return that they, uh, they're surprised by that as well. Uh, remember, this is really early in, in the days of the disciples following Jesus, and they're still learning uh, how, he, how he works and what he's, uh, uh, what he's like and, 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 uh, and all of that. And, uh, but the, the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that it was unlawful even to teach the law to a woman. So Jesus, again, is going against uh, the conventional teachings and scruples of the religious establishment and of the rabbis of his day. So this, this woman, she's, she's shocked when Jesus engages her because she's a Samaritan. She's equally probably shocked by the fact that he's engaging her because she was a woman. But there's something else going on here, isn't there? There's something else here. Not only is she a woman, not only is she a Samaritan woman, but she's a Samaritan woman with a past. And we had no idea, right? We we didn't know this, except maybe the fact that she was alone at the well. Because there was a reason that this woman was alone at that well that day. She's on her sixth man. It's the sixth hour of the day, John says, and she is on the sixth man in her life. Now, it doesn't say what the circumstances were or what may have been her fault or what may have been their fault or, or because things just happen too, right? Sometimes things just happen and sometimes it's nobody's fault. But if the truth be told, all of us have a past that is a mixture of our own bad decisions and the bad decisions made by others. And then there are those things that just happen. And those looking from a distance might make all kinds of judgments about us, whether we in the right, or whether we're in the wrong, or whether we're a victim, or whether we're somebody you'd better off just staying away from, oversimplifications, just like we judge the situation afar uh, and make heroes and villains out of Jews and Samaritans, right? And then mixed in all with that, of course, is the real guilt, the real guilt from the mistakes we make and, and, the, and the choices, the bad choices we make and the sins we commit. And all of us have those things too. Um, I don't recall who he was or why he was being interviewed, but I did see a man interviewed on a news program one time several years ago who said he had no regrets. He lived his whole life, well, he was like a grown man, and he said he had no regrets. I don't want to judge the guy at any one point of his life, but I can tell you he is deluding himself. The truth is that there is not a single one of us who does not have things that we are ashamed of. 
But who knows it? Who knows it all? I mean, at the end of the day, who can say, right? Because who knows? Even we ourselves, we're really good at spinning the truth, especially when it comes to looking at ourselves in ways that are favorable or make us feel better about ourselves. So who really does know? Do your neighbors know? Do the people down the street know? Does Certainly a stranger doesn't know. But Jesus knows. And that's the point here, right? He knows, and we're still talking. We're not told what this woman is thinking here. But we are called to identify with the people on the pages of Scripture. That's part of good and careful interpretation and application of Scripture. When we identify with the people on the pages of Scripture. And though we can't say with certainty what this woman is thinking, what's going through her mind. I am pretty certain that one of the things that's going through this woman's mind is something like this. If you knew me, you wouldn't be engaging me like this right now. If you only knew me, we wouldn't be having this conversation because you wouldn't be talking to me. You you, you just got to know that you're you're at the well this day and this stranger comes along and everyone in town knows or thinks they knows everything about your life. But this stranger, whom you've never met before, you've never even laid eyes on him, he doesn't even know you from Adam. But you know that if he knew, he would not want to be near you or be seen with you or do anything as intimate as having this intimate conversation over a refreshing cool drink at the end of a dry, hot, dusty day. I can't say this for certain either, but I tend to think that when Jesus said to this woman back in verse 10, if you knew the grace of God, that's what gift means, right? If you knew the grace of God and who it is that is speaking to you right now, You would have asked for living water. I believe that when Jesus said that, he was speaking to and responding to the thoughts of this woman's heart. Because I believe she was thinking, if you really knew me, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. And Jesus is saying to her, if you knew me and the grace of God, you would have asked for living water. Because there... I don't know, are are there any of us who have not thought these thoughts? If you really knew me, you would not want to have anything to do with me? I mean, other than that one guy I saw interviewed on the news. Maybe, Maybe he's never had those thoughts. And I am being facetious because you know, as well as I know, that every single one of us has had those thoughts. If you really knew me, And I think if we miss this here, then we miss the miracle. Because this is a miracle of knowledge and grace. 
And it is, I believe, the point of the passage. He knows me, and he still loves me. A miracle of knowledge and grace. Uh, if that truth doesn't light your fire, then I'd say your wood's probably soggy. Uh, it reminds me of the old gospel song. He knew me, yet he loved me. He whose glory makes the heavens shine. So unworthy of such mercy, yet when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. But we're not done the passage yet. Let's keep on going. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, some have suggested that this is an attempt by the woman to change the subjects, uh, perhaps because she's embarrassed or ashamed. I don't think so. We need to understand that this woman's whole life and her whole view of life has been shaped by her religious belief. Just as every one of us, whether we consider ourselves religious or not, or whether you consider yourself religious or not, your whole life is shaped, your view of life is shaped by your religious beliefs. And this was true for her. And remember, she was a Samaritan. And she's identified Jesus as a Jew, remember. And if he really is a prophet, that would mean that he could be the prophet. And what does that mean for a Samaritan woman with a past? One of the things that you should know about the Samaritans is that they had a Bible, they had scriptures, but their scriptures consisted completely of the first five books, what we call the books of Moses, the books of the law, the Pentateuch, the Decalogue, um, no, not the Decalogue, the Pentateuch. Um, that was their whole, their whole uh, position and their belief system. That, those are the books they accepted as Scripture, and they had all the other books of our Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. They didn't recognize those. Now, think for, think for a moment. If you only have the first five books of the Bible in Jesus' day, what are you missing theologically? We just spent the past year and a half uh, exploring that. And it's pretty vast, but let me suggest a couple of things to you. You would not have, and they're really big things, you would not have the theology of the Davidic covenant, which, by the way, forms the largest and most developed body of messianic materials and messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. The Messiah, remember, was to come from Judah, or if you will, from the Jews. Um, and along with that, in conjunction to it, you would not recognize Jerusalem as the chosen place for God's name to dwell. Uh, not the only place for worship, because just to be clear, God can be worshipped and should be worshipped everywhere, but the place where God's name would dwell. Um, but she did have the books of Moses, right? She had the books of Moses. And Mount Gerizim, when she says that mountain, uh, she's, uh, she says in verse uh, 19, uh, uh, verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place to, where people ought to worship. When she says that, she's referring to Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritans worshiped, was Mount Gerizim. And uh, Mount Gerizim, Mount Zion doesn't come up 
uh, by name in the books of Moses. Uh, Mount Gerizim does. It figures prominently. You may recall, if you've been with us on this journey through the Bible, you may recall that when they first entered the land, the people divided up into two groups and half stood on Mount Gerizim and half stood on Mount Ebal, and they pronounced back and forth the uh, blessings and the cursings uh, that came with uh, the law. It was a very significant place, and a lot happened there. Um, that's Deuteronomy chapter 11. Um, Mount Gerizim, Samaritans, Jews. Um, something I found really interesting in my studies uh, this week, I didn't know, or maybe it was last week, um, this, the Samaritans exist as a people today. Even today, you know, they've, they've done, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a group in Israel that refer to themselves as Samaritans. They have, practice a, a, a faith or religion that, that's called Samaritanism, and their Bible is the first five books of our Bible, or the Hebrew Bible, the books of Moses. And this is really, I find this really interesting, that there was a, a research study done uh, that was conducted, uh, modern genetics research, that found, and this is from an article called... Uh, Reconstruction of Patrilineages and Matrilineages of Samaritans and Other Israeli Populations from Y-Chromosome and Mitochondrial, Mitochondrial DNA Sequence Variation. You might want to read it sometime. I'm just kidding. But the interesting thing was that the research shows that these modern-day Samaritans are actually genetically a mixture of Jewish people and non-Jewish people, which is exactly what the Bible teaches us, which is, I find, fascinating. But then again, I guess maybe uh, that would make me a bit of a, a Bible nerd, but um, that's okay. Uh, I just find all this stuff fascinating. I hope that you it helps you think through the background of this because the background is really important because... Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship you what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. On the one hand, Jesus corrects or informs her theology about the Messiah coming from the tribe of Judah. And at the same time, he corrects the Jewish and the Samaritan misunderstanding about the fact that worship is not about a place, it's about a person. See, by this day, the temple had become a giant idol in Israel to Judah. The woman said in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I mentioned that they only had the first five books that they adhered to, the trusted in. Um, but you find, we find within those first five books, messianic prophecies. A key messianic prophecy is Deuteronomy chapter 18. Let me read to you what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, 19. It says, 
This is God speaking to Moses. He said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The Samaritans believed that a Messiah was coming, and one of their favorite titles for the Messiah was the prophet. Remember, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. They didn't have the, 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 the Davidic material, the, uh, the kingship material, messianic material, but they had the promises in the books of the law that a, that a, that a prophet was going to come. And there were other prophets, uh, prophecies in that material as well. Remember, Jacob prophesied over his sons. This is all very relevant, very pertinent. We're talking here about the common ancestry of these people, the children of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob and his 12 sons. Jacob prayed this uh, blessing over his son Judah. He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Remember, the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, northern tribe, Judah, southern tribe, became known as the Jews. Um, then there's a prophecies of Balaam, and we won't, we won't go into that, but, but just, just follow through the storyline here. She said, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, verse 26, I speak to you, am he. Right straightforward. I am that Messiah. I am that prophet. I am the prophet. Just then the disciples come back. Verse 27. Disciples come back and they marvel that he was talking to with a woman. We, we talked about that, right? But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? This is early on, remember. They're, they're still learning what Jesus is all about. And they don't, they, don't, they don't know why he's talking to this woman or why he would talk to a woman because everybody knew that he shouldn't be doing that, right? Um, so it says in verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out, verse 30, and they went out of the town and they were coming to him. She left her water jar there at the well. Not unlike Peter, James, and John and Andrew left their fishing nets. Not unlike Matthew left his custom house to follow uh, uh, Jesus. <clears throat> and she's going and she's telling. And, and meanwhile, the disciples <laughs> who, who are following Jesus, who Jesus called to be with him and to, and to uh, send out. Uh, uh, because this story that we're into this morning is a story of a woman, but it's also the story of the disciples. Because look what it says in verses 31 through verse 38. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, not, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their harvest, their labor. And you might think like, what, what's that all about? And what does it have to do with this story? Oh, it has everything to do with the story. Fishers of men, farmers of men, it's different imagery, but it's the same truth. What is a harvest? Think about it. Is it not a gathering in? It's a gathering in of that which is of great value to us. This is a story of a woman it's a story about the disciples, and it's a story about us. I love that part where Jesus says to his disciples, lift up your eyes. That, that part has always gotten me. You see people. Did they see people? Did they see this woman as someone who needed to be gathered in? Someone of great value and potential who needed to be gathered into the kingdom of God and the family of God. Did they see those people making their way out of Sakar? Those who had listened to the testimony of this woman, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this not be the Christ? Come and see a man. Did the disciples see them as they're moving, coming towards Jesus when Jesus said, lift up your eyes and see? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus sent, after Jesus died and rose again, and he commissioned the, the disciples to go out into the harvest fields. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's finish up verse 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Personal faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. This is a story about a woman. It's a story about the disciples. And it's a story about us. I want for us to think. I want for us to think about that for a moment here. Jesus knows because he is God. And, the, and God is the only one who knows it all. Every single thing about us. Better than we know ourselves. Because we can create all kinds of false narratives and we can spin everything. We do it all the time. And other people can judge us and make judgments and and and. and convict us one way or the other, make us into heroes or make us into villains. 
into perpetrators or into victims. But who knows the complete story? Who knows the real story of every single thing of our lives, every, every tear, every joy, every sin, every bright spot, every dark secret of our lives? He knows it all. Perhaps you wonder sometimes, will there ever be any real justice? I mean, who can actually ever really bring about real justice? Well, there will be real justice because he's already made it so. He's already made it so. And I, and I think about not only his justice, but his grace. And I think about that whole gospel song again. He knew me, yet he loved me. He who's, heaven, who's loving makes the heavens shine. So unworthy of his mercy. So unworthy of his mercy. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Come meet a man. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the one? And many believed, it says, because of her testimony, he told me everything I ever did. I'm quite certain that Jesus talked with this woman about more than what's recorded here. Because what's recorded is only enough for you and I to know enough about her story to know that Jesus knows. And to know the gift of or the grace of God. I'm really looking forward to meeting this woman someday and hearing her story and hearing her tell her story because she was a woman ripe for a miracle, a miracle of knowledge and grace. He told me everything I ever did. Think about that. And think about this. She said to her, neighbors, (laughs) neighbors, <laughs> her friends, probably all, all those people who had judged her all, her whole life, come meet a man because he's amazing. He is so amazing. His knowledge, his knowledge of us and his grace Have you met him? Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this passage of scripture. There's a lot in it because you have a lot that you want us to think about and a lot that you want us to know. Lord, I identify with this woman because of all the things that we all have in common. We all have a past. All of our pasts are a mixture of bad decisions we've made, good decisions we've made, bad decisions other people have made, things that people have done to offend us, and then there's all that stuff that just happens. I thank you, Lord, that you know it all. That you know our hearts. And you're still talking to us. Because of your amazing grace, Jesus, you are so amazing. And we thank you, Lord, that we can worship you anywhere. And we worship you right now. I pray, Lord, that many people who 
maybe hearing these words would worship you right now, that they would that you would open their hearts, that you would enable and give people the grace to be honest with themselves and to be honest with you, that you would go from being a stranger on the road in Samaria to being their Lord and Savior, that you would show them your grace, forgive them their sin, and give them living water that they would never thirst again. Eternal life, a relationship personally with you as Savior of the world. We're all the recipients of your grace, and we need it, and you offer it to everyone. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, might you send us into that harvest field. Gather in with outstretched arms in your name those who are precious to you. And we would give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
Child of God.